Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Solis Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother Wes Moore, but it's been a busy week. And before I get to Wes, we have to talk about the Chauvin verdict. And more importantly, what this all means for the future of policing and police accountability. Obviously, as most of you all now know, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges this past week. And sentencing is in about eight weeks. It should be clear to anyone that's been following this that what we saw in this week's verdict wasn't justice, but instead some accountability for the murder we all witnessed. Justice for us is a world where passing a fake $20 bill doesn't end up being a death sentence, and we're far removed from what true justice looks like in this country. And even the lower bar of police accountability is still far too difficult to come by unless there's a tape of an officer kneeling on your neck for almost 10 minutes. If we're being honest, so far as federal policing reform is concerned, we should keep expectations low. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act should be law, and it helps move the needle on so many issues from accountability to making it easier to prosecute officers, to use of force standards, to keeping bad officers permanently off our streets. But it's unlikely to pass. Why? Because we need 60 votes to get police reform done, and that means asking Republicans to take votes against police unions. And that also applies to some moderate Senate Democrats who care far more about what police unions have to say than black lives. Their Black Lives Matters tweets notwithstanding. We could eliminate the filibuster and dare moderate Senate Democrats to take a stand and have to vote the way they tweet, but that'd be too much like right. So what should we do? Well, to me, what I know is that our local governments tend to skew Democratic and every local government needs to pursue a police reform and accountability agenda that goes as far as the state allows them to go. And for my friends in state legislatures, do what Maryland did and pass comprehensive policing reform. Or if you live in a state where Republicans control your legislature, use paper ballot initiatives driven by voter signatures to get police reform on the ballot and then let voters decide on everything from qualified immunity to police contracts. That's the real action. And until moderate Senate Democrats decide that they have to do more than give lip service to Black Lives Mattering, let's focus on state and local reforms. And that's that on that. Now on to our conversation with my brother, Wes Moore. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. 
I got my brother joining me today on the Bakari Sellers podcast. Ringer family, Spotify, everybody. Give a shout out to my brother, Wes Moore. How you doing, man? I'm blessed to be with you always, man. It's good to see you. Man, it's good to see you too. How's your family doing? How are you making it through through COVID and quarantine and running nonprofits and plotting to take over the world? How are you doing all of that, man? <laughs> you know, honestly, man, I am uh, I'm blessed and highly favored. The family has actually done really well during this period. But I tell you, this time, I, I got time with my kids and time with my wife that I didn't even know how to ask for. Now, but they change up on you now because, you know, you're starting to get out the house a little bit now. And now your wife like, where are you going? Why you why you got to leave? I'm like, and and I'm like, I'm like, y'all know I I used to be gone for like days at a time. Now I run to the store and they tell me when you getting back. Oh, yeah. Your wife, your wife call you all day, every day like you just supposed to be sitting at the house. I get it. I know what you're talking about. Look, we, we start off our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their careers. And you spent time in finance. You've been in the military and the nonprofit world. You've written several books. And most recently, you've been a bridge between the financial world and the fight against poverty through Robin Hood. How? Well, let's let's be clear. The Robin Hood Foundation. So yes, yes. I don't I don't want people <laughs> blowing you up about why you freeze them out their GameStop account. How, how did each of those stops lead you to anti-poverty work? Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember sitting there when they first asked me to be the CEO of Robinhood. I remember thinking to myself, I'm, I must be the most accidental CEO of, of, a, of a poverty fighting foundation you could ever find because I, I didn't come up through the foundation world. In fact, I was actually very skeptical of philanthropy historically mm-hmm. and publicly skeptical of philanthropy, of, of what philanthropy does and who, and who it serves. Where I've, I publicly said, uh, I was like, I don't believe in philanthropy for philanthropists. And so when I told them this and I said, you know, listen, I, I've, I've actually been pretty vocal about my my uh, my displeasure with a lot of ways philanthropy works. They said, no, we've seen it and we've done our homework and it's all over the Internet. And I said, no, why are we having this conversation? And, and they said, because we don't think what you're saying is wrong. And when I thought about it from that perspective, I was like, you know, I have I've had a chance and I've had the, the pleasure to exist in, work in and lead in almost every aspect of the American economic engine, right? Whether it was my time in the military or working in Washington, whether it was working in finance, whether it was starting my own platform that was venture backed and eventually we had a successful exit on. But all of these things led up to this time where I say, you know, if we have a problem that I think is one of our nation's most holistic problems, the fact that We are, you know, when people say poverty is a choice, my whole thing is I tell them, you know what? It is a choice, but it's not a choice of the person who who has, who's bearing the weight of it. It's society's choice. It's society's choice about how much pain that we're willing to see and endure in our neighbors. And so if I thought that, you know, if we had a chance to actually lead one of the largest organizations in the country that has an exclusive mission on this, but really tailor and train that mission to be able to, to, to bring forth structural systemic changes to this issue, that became something that was exciting to me and, and where I felt like I'm, I'm in the right seat. So for those who may not know, what is Robin Hood and what is it about? Yeah, so Robin Hood, is a, it's, a, it's a 32-year-old organization uh, with an exclusive focus on, on, on ending poverty. And it first started off in 1988, where a group of the founders got together and they said, listen, this is going to be a hard year for, for the markets and for, the, for, you know, for folks in finance. 
but they're like, but you know what this is really going to be a hard year on is for mm-hmm. people who are already living in poverty. Yeah. Um, because every, for people living in poverty, every year is a hard year. You know what I mean? And so initially they started off making about $40,000 worth of grants uh, to organizations and using data and metrics to be able to examine who are the most effective organizations in the space to deal with poverty. Now, 32 years later, you know, we have allocated just shy of $4 billion oh my goodness. into the poverty fight. And that's again, that's on everything from education to transportation, to housing, to mental and physical health, to criminal justice reform. Everywhere where poverty is either the cause or the consequence, we will find, fund, create and build if necessary. But what are the mechanisms that can actually create measurements of sustainable change? I mean, for those people who are listening, I got a lot of athletes who, you know, just, and I interact with a lot of athletes who are just getting that platform or reaching that level. And the first thing they all want to say is I want to do a nonprofit. What yeah. goes into like that transparency that you have to have, that stewardship of dollars, that vision, how, how difficult is it day in and day out to do that work that you do? The first piece of advice I give to anybody who's, who comes up and is like, I'm thinking about starting a nonprofit. My first piece of advice is, don't start a nonprofit. <laughs> I know exactly. Like, you know, there are enough out here. You ain't got to start one. Go find there. one that, uh, that, that aligns with your mission. <laughs> there, there are. So true story. There are about 4,000 nonprofit organizations that in some way, shape or form in this country focus on veterans issues. And as a veteran, uh, like I know this space and I'm thinking to myself, there are 4,000 issues that veterans are facing. So so what you don't want to do is just create an organization that like, there are dozens of other organizations that are doing the exact same thing because what you're doing is actually you're diluting the impact that you're trying to get to. And so the first thing I would actually tell people who are thinking about that and who have capital, and first of all, I I applaud you because it is beautiful that you are doing that. Not everybody who has access to capital decide to do something good with it. And so I applaud you for that. But the second thing I would say is that find the organizations that are already doing really good work. Find the leaders that are already in the space Find ways of supporting them. That's the first thing. And the second thing I would say is don't forget why that issue exists in the first place. And so I remember having this conversation with, you know, with our with our board and our team when I first came on board. And I said, why do you think poverty exists? And I told him, I was like, this isn't a rhetorical question. I'm actually asking you, why do you think poverty (laughs) exists? And, you know, lack of opportunity, all this kind of stuff. I said, I, you know, got it. All that's right. Poverty exists because of policy. We have policies that put people and keep people in poverty. I mean, amen. And so if, so if we're talking about the type of leverage that whether it's athletes or actors or entertainers, or whatever it is, the type of leverage that you have, yes, you will always have the philanthropic lever that you can pull and you should pull it regularly and you should pull it joyously, right? Because that does matter for our organizations. The other lever that you have, though, is you have voice, Yeah, is you have influence and understand, never be afraid to get at the root of why the problem that you are trying to solve exists in the first place. That can be your greatest sense of leverage to actually address the issue you're trying to get done. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. 
This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. You know, before we get to your newest book, Five Days, I wanted to talk uh, about your hometown of Baltimore for a second. You have a new young mayor in Brandon Scott, but for years the the city has been beset by so many of the same issues that seem to plague so many American cities where multi-generational poverty, disinvestment, and neglect often morph into other issues. What do you think Baltimore needs from Washington and from Annapolis in order to reach its potential? Yeah. Well, well, one, I, I am so excited about Brandon. Uh, and, Brandon's you know, dope. I, I like his Afro. Shout out to I, Brandon. I, I, I like his Afro and I like his vision. I, I had the joy of serving as a, as a co-chair of his, uh, of his transition team. And, and, you know, the reality is when you're talking about Baltimore is, is Baltimore has had four mayors in five years. I mean, well, that's because they all about. get indicted. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Every mayor you need needs a criminal attorney. And shout out, I, they, I know some of them, they're my friends. I mean, I, I get it, but I don't know what that is. Y'all keeping a criminal bar in business up there. <laughs> but, I, but I tell you, I mean, I, I, I love the fact that Brandon, first of all, we have a mayor who I believe, I believe deeply is, is, is here to stick. Right. Who understands that you are that the first years and the first term is just the beginning. We need to have measures of continuity when it comes to our leadership. And he gets that. I think he also is bringing a bold vision into how we're going to address many of these issues is that, you know, there has to be a holistic approach in the way that we're actually thinking about this work, that this is not about one section of town. This is not about one area of the community. This is not about one sector. Uh, Mm -hmm. leadership means being able to bring all these various sectors on board and understand that, A, there's a measure of complicity that we all have to own. But the second thing is there's a measure of vision that we all have to buy into. And his ability to be able to do that collectively is going to be important. Now, your point about about the state becomes really important, too, because 
Just like, you know, when people talk about what was the origins of, of much of the rise of Detroit, right, or the rise of Atlanta or the rise of, other, of some of these other areas, the rise of Denver, it wasn't just the fact that we had strong and solid leadership in these areas that helped to build. It became that it wasn't Detroit versus everybody. It was Detroit and Michigan and everyone else working together, right? That they needed the level of state support to be able to continue the build, to have the resources. Same right. thing with you have Atlanta and Georgia, same thing you have with Austin and Texas, same thing you have with Denver and Colorado. And so that level of state support is something that Brandon is going to need because, you know, truthfully, not only hasn't he had it, we've also had leadership that continues to feel that every time they, they dump on Baltimore, the rest of their approval rating in the rest of the state goes up. And so that also is something that Brandon's going to have to work through as well. So let's talk five days. What's it about? Why did you decide to write it? Yeah. So five days is about the five days surrounding the, uh, the funeral of Freddie Gray. And it was Freddie fast Gray, moving. It was fast. As I, you know, when I was reading five days, I forgot some of that stuff happened in that five days. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, 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 and listen, and, and, and you were right there, right in the middle and involved in all this stuff during that time period. And that was a crazy time period because, uh, you know, what we had and what, what started the whole thing. Uh, and again, we're now watching threads of it again, was you had a 25 year old young man who made eye contact with police and ran. The hmm. reason I bring that up is this. That's only a crime in certain neighborhoods. That's only a crime in, in, you know, in quote unquote, high poverty areas. So he yep. makes eye contact and he runs. The police chase him and they arrest him because running in those in, in a neighborhood like that is enough to trigger a probable cause. After he's arrested, an hour after he's arrested, he's in a coma with three broken vertebrae and a crushed voice box. He stays in a coma for a week until he dies. And there are weeks of protests that took place after that. Uh, until finally one night, it was actually the night of his funeral, that there was an unrest that took place in an uprising in Baltimore that eventually led to the National Guard being called in. And so what I did was in five days, I wanted to look at those five days around his around his funeral through the eyes of eight different people. Mm -hmm. and, and a collection. You do this good in your writing, too, by giving you you kind of get the reader in the heads of other individuals, the other Westmore being, being that example, but go ahead. No. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, but actually, but, and, 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 and I really appreciate that Picard because it's like, it, it's one of these things where I actually felt that it was a very therapeutic process for me to go through mm -hmm. because I was trying to process my own emotions. And I found that all these different perspectives that I was hearing from other people actually helped me to better understand my own emotions Yeah, because that was a very, very hard time for not just the city, but I remember going to Freddie's funeral, man. And I remember thinking to myself that this is the first funeral I've ever been to of someone who I didn't know while they were alive. And I remember the night that everything jumped off in Baltimore. When I found out about everything that was happening was when I was on my way to Boston to give a talk on poverty. Right. And I turn my phone on because, you know, shut the phone off when you get in the plane, shut my phone. Off, and my phone is blowing. It's like bzz, 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 all these messages coming. I'm like, what is what what is going on? And I'm checking messages. Everyone's like, are you watching what's going on? Hey, are you OK? Is everything good? Mm. And I start getting word about the fact that we had school students at Douglas High School who start squaring off with police 
And then how that became the beginning of what turned into a completely sleepless night for the city of Baltimore. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is my home. This is the place where I am raising my children. And I'm in Boston giving a talk on poverty. And so there was a deep sense of complicity, frankly, that I felt in all of this. And I think by being able to look at it through the eyes of Tawanda Jones, a woman who, mm-hmm. who lost her brother just two years before, who was leading the protest in Baltimore. But in the whole time in the back of her mind, she is, she, while she's proud of Baltimore for finally standing up, she is thinking to herself, but where was all this when my brother was killed by police? You know, I'm, I'm thinking about it through the eyes of Nick Mosby, you know, a, a, a city councilman who is, is walking the streets, talking to the kids. And he's like, you know, I'm trying to tell these kids I came up with them. I came up just like them. But he's like, but I wonder, is all they see is just a suit? Yeah. Who's here to lie to you? Yeah. You know, through the eyes of Mark Partee, a police major who grew up in West Baltimore. And I remember, I'll never forget where I was when he told me, Bakar. He, was, he, he said to me, he said, I know none of my colleagues woke up that morning with homicide in their mind. But I know why for kids in West Baltimore, they don't believe me. Yep. And hearing all That's these powerful. various perspectives was, yeah. was, was actually really important for me, not just personally to, to kind of process my own feelings, but also I felt like it was an important way for me to try to share the story with other people. What's changed in Baltimore since those five days? Not enough. <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, the reality is, is that Baltimore has still had a, a really hard go uh, during that time period. In fact, I would argue that the last five years have maybe been some of the most difficult stretches that we've seen where we have. We've had we've had mayors go to jail during that time period. We've had, uh, you know, well, we've had the city go under a consent decree from the Department of Justice, which, by the way, when the Trump administration came on board, they just got rid of it um, and just we started working around it. But a, a city where we started seeing patterns and practices of discriminatory policies against black population by, by law enforcement. But more importantly, I think some of the things that we haven't, we have not seen is this larger collective understanding of that. The thing that should keep us up at night should not just be how Freddie died. Yeah. It should be how he lived. That was one of the most powerful things and, and, and shout out to Chris Jackson who is both my editor for every book that I've written and, and is like a, one of the best editors in the world uh, over at One World. But um, I remember when the book was completed and I, and I was pulling this thing together and I was working with with, uh, with very talented Erica Green, uh, who was with The Sun now, now at the Times. And I sent this thing off to, to Chris and he said to me, he said, something's missing. He said, you still have to ground them in Freddie's life. Amen. And I pulled together Freddie Gray's timeline of his life. And it reminded me that this was a young man who was born premature and underweight. This was a young man who was born into deep poverty. His mother lived in deep poverty her entire life. She never made it to high school. She could not read or write. She also battled addiction for much of her life. So Freddie Gray was already exposed to heroin by the time he was born. When he finally gained enough weight, to leave the hospital, they moved into a, house, in the, into a housing project in West Baltimore. That house, along with 480 other homes, were cited in a, in, a, in, a, in a civil lawsuit back in 2009 because of the endemic levels of lead inside of that house. Oh, yes. I remember. Okay. I'm following now. Yeah. 
I yeah. mean, like, and, and that's the thing when people understand, you know, any, any exposure to lead to the human body is not because, good. But it causes you know, these. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a neurotoxin. It's a neurotoxin. Yeah. Correct. And, and the CDC indicates that if a person has, if a person has uh, more than five micrograms of lead in every deciliter of blood, that that person will have cognitive damage for the remainder of their life. Freddie Gray had 36. So this was a young man who was born premature, underweight, born into deep poverty, exposed to heroin, Mm -hmm. and lead poisoned. And by that time in his life, he's two years old. And so the important thing, and I think about it where- That's policy. That's policy. Freddie Gray's life was a policy failure. The police department was not the first aspect of our society to fail Freddie. It was just the last. It was the last one to fail Freddie. And I think about it where that- I'm stealing this, by the way. I'm stealing that. I'm about to mention that on TV. I'm going to attribute that to you, Wes, but we're going to get that platform. That's right. It wasn't the, the first. It was just the last. Let me ask you this, though. You have a unique way, and you're one of the best communicators I know, which may make you a great politician one day. We're not, we'll get to that part of the discussion because you, you're able to weave themes in a way that people can kind of take in. So I want to, you, you've tied in your policy argument about poverty, the life of Freddie Gray. You've made it a 50,000 foot view, but we're in the middle of the Chauvin trial and the recent tragic murder of probably involuntary manslaughter. My executive producer, Jared, always thinks it's a murder, whichever, the life lost of Dante Wright. What should cities like Baltimore be learning from events like Freddie Gray, George Floyd, and Dante Wright? I mean, let's talk about the policy, not just policing, but how can these cities get better at giving value to um, Black lives and giving them the benefit of their humanity from the cradle to not the grave, but a life lived fruitfully. You know, I I think one of the biggest things we continue to see, Bakari, is, you know, people can say, well, we need to focus on on, on training. We have to focus on recruitment and retention and all this kind of things. And And I think we can continue coming up with policies that are fighting last year's war. And these things are important that we are able to address. I mean, I just saw just recently, uh, you know, and I'm incredibly proud of the state of Maryland for what has happened with the elimination of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. That's huge. That's and huge. It was huge. It's because of the fact that whether we can go down the list of names, right, whether you're talking about Michael Brown, Orlando Castile, Freddie Gray, Anthony Anderson, Walter Scott, Chris Brown, Tyrone yeah. West, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor. I mean, you can just continue going down the line. The, the, the thread that we have between all of those names is that there has never been any accountability. I guess nobody's responsible for I mean, the deaths. Correct. And, you know, and so they, and what so, are you talking about? If they wouldn't have run or sold Lucy <laughs> CDs or sold cigarettes or been 11 years old playing with a toy gun or paid or their child support. Signal. Or didn't you? Or did, I know it's or didn't absurd. Use a signal. You did not know that those are death penalty crimes. That's right. Or or or, or didn't make eye contact and ran. Correct. You know, it, it's this type of thing that that we can continue coming up with policies and adjustments to this, and we need to. And again, I I, I applaud the leaders in the Maryland state, you know, Maryland Maryland General Assembly, and 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 frankly, the folks who had to override the veto 
of the Republican governor on this to actually make it happen. But at the same time, there's something at our root cause of all this that we as a nation still have yet to wrestle with. And that is the issue of race. No shit. It's the issue of race. It's about the fact that this country, you know, if we're being completely honest, this is a country that was built and founded on a racial hierarchy. And law enforcement was actually police in this country were actually emanated from slave patrols. And people that's get outraged right. when you tell them, I'm like, oh, you ain't learned that? Like, that's a, that's a fact. That's its history. That's <laughs> yeah. where it started. Correct. You know, it's a, it's we're still a nation that was built with, you know, with stolen labor on stolen land. That's our history. And 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 I think about this where we have watched over a dozen countries that have had the courage to be able to stare at their deepest wounds and be able to not just examine, but to be able to have action plans around it. Whether you're talking about South Africa and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, whether mm-hmm. you're talking about Burundi, whether you're talking about Rwanda, whether you're talking about Germany, whether you're talking about Northern Ireland, whether you're talking about Colombia, whether you're talking about Argentina, whether you're talking about Chile, whether you're talking about Canada twice, countries that have actually had the courage to be able to look at its history and be able to say, if this is where we have come from, we cannot move forward unless there is a firmer sense of acknowledgement about what this means about the path. You know, and, I, I tell folk this, Wes, and, and, and maybe you agree with me and can flesh it out a little bit more. I just tell folk that our curriculum in this country has been decently violent in the way that we miseducate entire generations about where our country has come from. You and I both, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. We come from a position, which is, I think, why we're friends um, and we find ourselves to be a little bit more center than the left of some others. But, you know, we don't view this country to be irredeemable. We we realize that we have to reimagine what this country should be. That's right. And and I think that and what you just said that was that was so beautifully said and so beautifully framed as well. And, and and you know and part of it is is that this idea that this country is irredeemable. Do you know who that's you know spits in the face of? It spits in the face of Harriet Tubman. Correct. It spits or in Benjamin the face Banneker of, or, Benjamin or George Banneker. Washington George Washington Carver people who who built this country with their hands, although right. they were they were paid with a check that was marked insufficient That's right. funds. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Look, I, I can talk to you about this all day, but I, I got I got notes in here. I want to talk to you about Robin Hood. I want to talk to you about closing the wealth gap in 90 to zero. Let's actually talk about 90 to zero before we get to this last part. You're yes. also a part of 90 to zero, an initiative designed to close the racial wealth gap. Um, how is 90 to zero different from other racial wealth gap initiatives. If you could talk about policy interventions, I know briefly, what would they be? I just did an episode with John Rogers, who is one of my one of my financial heroes. I, I wish my portfolio could look like John Rogers' portfolio. <laughs> we, all, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> and he talked about this racial wealth gap. Talk to me about 90 to zero and some of those policy prescriptions that you think are necessary. Yeah. I mean, and 90 to zero really does highlight that. It's the fact that there's a, that, that 90% racial wealth gap that we have inside this country is not just, it's not just hurting black folks. It, it's hurting our country where, you know, Citigroup, you know, put together analysis saying that the racial wealth gap has cost this country sixteen trillion dollars. Yes. Yeah, right. And then so you just saw the CDC say racism is a public health threat. So not only are we we're, we're losing in our pockets, but it's making our country sicker. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so really what we look at 90 to zero, it's an initiative for us to be able to have a collective conversation on how to strengthen the economic fortunes of our entire nation by stop circumventing the opportunities for some. And so when you so, you know, when we look at this, uh, really, what we wanted to have is a, is a holistic, uh, holistic action plan for organizations that are, that cross a whole sector of different entities of the American economic movement. So that is both corporate America and financials mm-hmm. and, and, and media companies, but it's also nonprofits, it's foundations and philanthropies, it is universities. And so all these various organizations that in some way, shape or form have their hands on, on the economic level of this country is asking us all to collectively be better, do better, and work in unison. And so we've actually been working with the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business and and uh, and Dean Erica James, who is who's who's spectacular. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, Erica and, and James sounds like a black woman. Is Erica James? Hey, Erica James is a black woman. Erica I James is a black woman. Erica James. Just yeah, I'm gonna call her up. Erica James. That 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 sounds like a black woman. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. I didn't know Wharton was led by a black woman. Warden is led by a black woman. And let me tell you, she is brilliant. She's great. You need to have her on the show. I mean, she's, I'm, I'm she's gonna get her on my show. She's spectacular. And but 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 we're working with her in unison to really create what are the metrics that all these organizations, these best practices that we are seeing that are focusing on everything from how are we recruiting and hiring uh, more diverse talent pools? How are you promoting and retaining and uh, black leadership? all throughout the specter of your organization, everything from entry level to your boards, how are we improving access uh, to asset building tools and now in, in increasing liquidity to black owned organizations and, and, and sponsors. So it's asking the question, not just what you're doing within your own, own organization, but who are your lawyers? Who yeah. are your accountants? Listen, your let me tell you part? this. Let me tell you this. The PPP loans, right? You know, there were 5% of the PPP loans went to banks or whatever it may be. Five points of those loans went to banks, whatever. One of those points was designated for accountants and lawyers. And so the question is, not only are who you're banking with, but who are your accountants and who are your lawyers? You're talking about billions upon billions of dollars that can change the whole, uh, can uplift an entire community that we're usually locked out of. Not only were we not getting the PPP loans, but we weren't getting the access to those points that were used to implement the program as well. I want to talk to you about a recent announcement that you made that you were considering a 2022 run for governor. Only you can go and talk to Gail about this. Um, You know, I was like, how West? I'm just flipping through. Most people announce it in like the local gazette. (laughs) The West West Baltimore, you know, weekly. But here you go with Gail talking about you thinking about running for governor. Why are you considering a run? I mean, what do you think voters are looking for after Larry Hogan? Because, you know, with all due respect for Larry, I, I don't see you as a Larry Hogan type of governor. So are and you I am not? Are you are you going to give I mean, voters just elected him not once but twice. They and did. So they did. you're saying you're saying 180 degree difference. Talk to me about how you win this race and how you give them what they need. Well, I, I think that what Maryland is ready for right now is Maryland is ready to accomplish big things again. And I feel like in many ways, we've just stopped trying. 
Even the initiatives that we were talking about before that that have fundamentally made the state stronger, whether it is talking about the fifteen dollar minimum wage, or whether it's talking about the the you know the the Kerwin education bill, which is going to be end up becoming one of the most transformational educational platforms that this state has ever seen, and frankly a model for the rest of the country, or whether we're talking about HBCU funding, or whether we're talking about the the repealing the law enforcement officer. Now bill listen, of that man just that man just signed off on it. Now he vetoed it, but he signed off on it. So you Negroes be happy. With that, with the money he gave y'all. So, so okay. Well, but we we can get into that in a second. <laughs> we can get into that in a second. But but here's the thing: what's the thread between all of those things? He vetoed them. Yeah. And it took Correct. an override. Correct. It took an override to make those things happen. If you look at what happened with the police reform, seventy percent of the legislator voted to override his veto. If you look at the HBCU funding, HBCU funding that's been going on for years. Yep. And the, when the reality is, is that now when you think about the amortized capital that's going and it's now going to be spread amongst four various universities, and now you can have a press conference as if you were spearheading the whole thing. It's we are ready to think big again and actually make big things happen. And so, so, and it's so, even the topics that we're talking about today, Bakar, you know, I, I don't want to keep on have to have these conversations. It's mm-hmm. time that we actually make these topics history. And that goes beyond this idea of equal justice under law. It, 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 as it says in the U.S. Supreme Court, it goes to making sure that people aren't left behind economically, that people aren't left behind when it comes to their health, that people aren't left behind when it comes to the environment, that, that people who are living in lifelong poverty like Freddie, who are struggling during pandemic and maybe beyond. You know, I, I mean, I came from, I come from a, from a military background and there's a model that and a mantra that we all live by. And that's this idea that we don't leave people behind. Amen. We don't leave people behind on the battlefield. We don't say, well, I just wish they ran faster. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I, I wish they had a better I wish they had a better shot. We don't do that. Right. We're taught that and we believe in that. And I don't believe in this idea that we continue to leave so many people behind. This is the wealthiest state in the, the wealthiest state in the country at the in the wealthiest country in the world at the wealthiest time in our world in our in our in our world history. And we still right now have over have 700,000 residents who are living below the poverty line. Makes no sense. Including 15 percent of black folks. But you got to meet these people where they are. And, you know, a lot of these folks feel like government, Democrat or Republican. I've heard it. They they first thing they tell me, man, is Barack Obama ain't do shit for me, man. You know, they because they because of the, the lack of messaging or they don't know that the Affordable Care Act was written for them. And now they have insurance because of it or pushing these initiatives. So you got to meet these folk where they are because it's a disenchanted base. Are you prepared to go out in however many counties there are in Maryland from you know, from coast to coast and knock on these doors and have those uncomfortable conversations with a lot of voters, particularly black male voters who've been disenchanted with the process. Absolutely. And, 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 I, and I think that, you know, part of my exploration into this into this governor's race is an understanding that if people are feeling disenfranchised and feeling disenchanted, they have a reason to feel that way. Mm. You know, it's justified. Yeah. I'm not here to tell you that your feelings aren't right. Correct. Uh, what I am here to tell you is that if we believe that we can do something about it, and if we believe that we can build the right coalition to actually not just talk about change, but actually create real sustainable change, then let's actually do it. And the reality is, is that whether it's the work that you know, that I've done with with the military, or, or with having my own small business in Maryland, or the work that we're doing running the running the you know one of the largest. Uh, organizations, poverty fighting organizations in the country, we've got a track record of actually getting this stuff done. Yeah. 
and not just talking about it. And so that's actually a conversation I'm excited to have about as I think about what is the what is the thing that I want to get into as I step down as a CEO of Robinhood and step into the next chapter um, that, that, that God has planned for, for, for me and my family. That, that the, my excitement in this exploration is the fact that I believe deeply that we can actually get good stuff and big stuff done. Big stuff. People want big stuff. So, Wes Moore, man, it's always an honor. We can talk all day. I wish you the best of luck. I, I uh, you know, when you win, you announce, if you announce, um, you know, we're here with you, for you. We love you. Uh, we adore your family. Um, and thankful that you're often you're offering yourself up for this. So, shout out to Wes Moore. A potential candidate for governor in 2022. Go pick up his new book, Five Days. And make oh, sure yeah. you get this one too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we, we got the paperback coming out of My Vanishing Country. And shout out to all of those who are now reading My Vanishing Country in uh, Spanish, uh, French, and German. It's coming out all over the world. So trying to be like Wes when I grow up. Thank you. Have a blessed day. And thank you for joining the Bukhari Sellers Podcast, my brother. Bless you, brother. Thank you, man, for everything. Be easy. So before I let you go, I wanted to make sure that you were all following the latest out of Columbus, Ohio, around yet another police shooting involving 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. On Tuesday, as the country was receiving and responding to the Chauvin verdict, we got news from Columbus that a 16-year-old was gunned down in her subdivision as the police responded to a dispute. From the body cam footage, it appears that Ms. Bryant did have a knife and was prepared to use it. And the officer's response was to shoot her almost immediately upon arriving at the scene of the dispute. Now, here's the predictable set of responses. For those who tend to side with officers, they'll say this is a justified shooting. She had a knife and had the officer not responded as he did, the young lady in the altercation could have been killed. For the rest of us, we saw this as an opportunity to de-escalate and the officer chose not to do so. It was a split-second decision, no doubt, but a part of me thinks, like a lot of black folks, that had the officer arrived on the scene of two young white women fighting, they would have been taken down and the knife would have been secured. Cops do that every day, except when the folks are black. Remember Cal Rittenhouse? We should prepare ourselves for the inevitable. And the inevitable is a letdown here of the forces of the former, including the local prosecutor in Columbus who will be making the charging decisions to be one where they rule this as a justifiable homicide. We have to prepare for that because that's what we're likely to get here. And sadly, rest in peace, Micaiah. That's that on that, and we'll see you on Monday. 